This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway reporting uh, for uh, Room Now from ACR 2022, and I'm coming at you virtually uh, from Dublin, Ireland. I'm here today to talk to you about an oral presentation um, on Monday. Uh, this was by Namrata Singh and colleagues. This was abstract number 2218. Um, and this was on frailty is associated with serious infections um, in biologic and TS demarge treated or a patients. Um, and the first thing we probably should explain in talking about this is, is what is uh, frailty? Um, and we all have a kind of a concept in our own heads, I suppose, of what a, a frail um, patient is. Probably the best way uh, to conceptualize it is an individual's ability to recover from unexpected stressors of any sort. So a frail individual is less able um, to recover uh, from these. Um, and a colleague of mine, uh, Sebastian Satoy, recently um, used the term bounce back ability for this, which I think is a really good uh, way of uh, describing uh, frailty. So a frail individual has less bounce back ability than a non-frail individual. So what um, Dr. Singh and colleagues did here, they used a market scan uh, database they had 62,246 RA patients treated with uh, biologic or TSDMARD. And they found that frail patients had a higher risk of serious infections with an adjusted hazard ratio of 2.37. They then adjusted that adjusted hazard ratio further for comorbidity burden and healthcare utilization. And it decreased to 1.34, but remained significant. Frail individuals also had an increased risk of all infections with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.18 and an increased risk of all cause hospitalization with an adjusted hazard ratio of uh, 1.34. So overall, I think what uh, these results are saying to us, it's not that we shouldn't be using um, these drugs in these frail individuals. Um, in fact, maybe we should, and they'd be better than the alternatives of, of steroids, um, as we have discussed extensively uh, previously. Um, but it gives us um, something to watch out for. If we have a frail individual, we need to be aware uh, of these potential risks um, and perhaps monitor them uh, more closely. And overall, I think this is really adding to the, the information on frailty and rheumatic diseases and how important it is um, as a prognostic marker um, in our patient uh, cohorts. So remember, uh, check out Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2022. And you can follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a Room Now reporter at ACR 2022 here in Philly, coming to us live. So I'm going to interview you, and I hear you did a poster, and I'd like to know about your systematic review. So first, can you introduce yourself and where you're from? Sure. I'm Dr. Kara Smang. I'm a rheumatologist at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Great. So you had a poster at this meeting and it was a systematic review. So tell me what it was about and tell me why you did it. Well, we did it because so many of our patients with rheumatoid arthritis struggle with the side effects of methotrexate. 
And the prior reviews of tapering methotrexate when combined with a targeted therapy have focused on tapering methotrexate when combined with TNF inhibitors only. And now patients may be taking methotrexate in combination with IL-6 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors. Also, patients need Patients and physicians need a clinically useful quantification of risk of losing remission when tapering methotrexate in this context. Right, so let, getting it straight, it was only randomized controlled trials, and it was trials where you stopped or didn't stop the background CSD MARD, which was usually methotrexate, and most of them, they were all advanced therapies, and most of them, the patients had to be in pretty darn good state, or you wouldn't uh, demedicate methotrexate. So with that in mind, and that's a lot of randomized controlled trials, about what percent of people would flare? Is there a price to pay for stopping methotrexate? Yes, what we found was that uh, in these 10 studies, nine of which were RCTs, there was one study that was a long-term uh, extension study uh, that was comparative but not randomized. Um, we found about a 10% reduction in the ability to sustain remission when tapering methotrexate from IL-6 inhibitors, JAK inhibitors, Avatacept, and TNF inhibitors. So if I'm talking to a patient next week in clinic, because they always say, you know, doctor, I feel a lot better, can I lower or stop my methotrexate? And I think we know what that usually means. They've already started to lower or, in fact, maybe stopped. But what would I tell them then? Is, is this a good thing to do? Is a, is a 1 in 10 chance of losing your good disease state worth it? What would you tell people? Well, I'm glad you asked that specific question. We did calculate a risk difference of minus 0.05, which in plain language means if one were to taper methotrexate uh, in 20 patients, 10% or two patients would lose remission. So I would tell my patient there is a risk of losing remission, that overall risk of losing remission is low. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is the longest follow-up was only up to 18 months. And there were some studies, including yours, that showed a possible worsening, not significant, but a possible trend of worsening functional and, patient, and other patient-reported outcomes. So we really do need to follow you uh, to my patient over time. Right. And you need to let me know right away if you experience right. any worsening so we can get you back on your former dose. Great. That, that's great. So I think two take-home messages. One, a lot of people get away with it, at least in the short term. And number two, please tell us if you're talking That's to the right. patient, if you're lowering methotrexate or stopping, because you want to cue them that if you're losing ground, we'd probably restart and see how you do. Well, I think that's a great study, and thank you for doing it, and I think it's clinically relevant. So please please follow us at Room Now at ACR Philly and all the other great Room Now things happening. Thank you. Hi, David Liu here for Room Now from the Philly Convention Center, ACR 22. Some more RA abstract. In particular, I want to tell you about some data from the VA Rheumatoid Arthritis Registry, abstract 0889, and it specifically relates to the interaction between adipokines and osteoporotic fractures. Adipokines, what are they? Well, they're hormones that relate to adipose tissue, to fat, and we've had a great appreciation over the last 10, 15 years about the importance of adipokines. A lot of obesity-related um, uh, damage and, and harm occurs because of adipokines, and we know in particular that they interact a lot with rheumatoid arthritis. We also know they interact with bone health, and that's what we saw here. So looking at this registry of rheumatoid arthritis patients, we saw a very clear correlation in terms of adipokine presence 
and osteoporotic fractures. And so um, they looked at two different adipokines, um, and if you had one, uh, you had increased, uh, increased risk of, of uh, um, osteoporotic fractures versus if you had none. If you had two, you had an even greater risk as well. So I think this is really tells us a lot about um, osteoporosis management in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. And I think we don't often necessarily we think about the, the pharmacology of it. We think about what drugs to give them, what drugs we shouldn't be giving them. But we really need to be thinking as well about the non-pharmacological management and really trying to think about how we manage fat, body fat, body composition in the context of managing the osteoporotic risk for our rheumatoid arthritis patients. For plenty more on RA and everything else at this conference, roomnow.com. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. There have been lots of interesting papers looking at new therapies, and the area that we are really interested in is the use of uh, JAK inhibitors. These have come along and uh, has really uh, revolutionized some of the treatments, especially in areas such as axospondyloarthritis. One of the concerns that we have is about the incidence of um, major cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism. And there was a study uh, presented here at ACR22 poster 510, where the, uh, they looked at the use of uh, upadacitinib, which is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, uh, across indications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and also ankylosing spondylitis. And here they had over 6,000 patients who uh, were recruited into the uh, studies, uh, and this involved nine different studies. And they looked particularly into the aspect of major cardiovascular events, MACE, and also VTEs. When you look at the uh, population study, the 40 to 50% of these patients had two or more risk factors for cardiovascular events, and also more than a quarter of them were above the age of 65. This immediately would put them at risk of having cardiovascular events and also a possible venous thromboembolism. What was interesting in this study across uh, the nine studies when they pulled the data was the actual incidence of uh, MACE was low. Uh, there were none in the, uh, in the ankylosing spondylitis group and 41 in the rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis group. When they looked at these uh, patients who had MACE in the RA and PSA group, they were enriched for risk factors. So these were standard risk factors uh, such as hypertension uh, and diabetes that, that predisposed them to having these risks. The number of patients that uh, who, who did not have the risk was actually quite small uh, in the people who developed MACE on the treatment. So this is uh, an interesting study. It adds to our knowledge uh, of uh, how we would manage our patients and make, making sure that we assess and also treat their risk factors if they are on treatment with a JAK inhibitor. There was also a study uh, at uh, 0404, uh, which is a study looking at another JAK inhibitor, a pan-JAK inhibitor called tofacitinib. Uh, and here, this is a, an oral uh, JAK inhibitor, and they were looking at one of the aspects, uh, which is uh, antocytis. Uh, this paper really uh, showed that it's actually quite sometimes quite challenging to assess enthesitis, especially when patients also have tender and swollen joints. And the presence of tender and swollen joints may actually affect the outcome uh, when, when patients are assessed for the enthesitis. Nevertheless, this study showed that in patients who 
won the tofacitinib arm. There was improvement in the uh, costochondral and also Achilles uh, enthesitis, uh, taking into account the number of tendons holding joints they had, and, and these patients did better compared to placebo. Another area that uh, where JAK inhibitors are coming in in the rheumatic diseases are in the area of uh, recycling uh, TNF inhibitors. So we usually, in the past, would have used TNF inhibitors as first-line treatment. And the question is, do we then recycle with another TNF inhibitor or do we switch mode of action? And uh, in poster 1588, they tried to answer these questions where patients had adalimumab as their first-line TNF. And then they would switch either to tanosap or to a JAK inhibitor. And in this study, it showed that there was a slight uh, improvement uh, in, in patients who were switched to JAK inhibitor in terms of some of their outcomes compared to switching to another uh, TNF inhibitor, namely etanosap. Nevertheless, there were some patients who did well on cycling to another TNF. So this study again shows us that there are certain patients who would benefit from a switch and usually in clinical practice, this would be some of our patients who had primary failure with the first TNF or an adverse event, uh, whereas patients who would continue on the uh, TNF inhibitor would usually be people who had a secondary failure. This is, again, uh, an area where we would need to do further studies, especially with the advent of more therapies uh, such as JAK inhibitors in our clinical practice. I'm Anthony Chan, um, reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now virtually uh, from ACR 2022. And I'm here today to talk to you about an oral presentation um, on Monday uh, by Beth Wallace and colleagues. Uh, this was abstract number 2219. And this was the time-dependent evaluation of gluc glucocorticoid um, exposure, duration, and uh, major cardiovascular events in rheumatoid arthritis. So this was a retrospective study using uh, the VA cohort. It had 19,000 um, RA patients um, included. The five-year MACE risk um, at baseline was a median of 5.3%. There were 20% of uh, the included patients who were at um, high risk of uh, MACE over five years. So this was a one-year study. Um, they had a six-month exposure period evaluating glucocorticoid use, and then they had a six-month um, period um, of follow-up after this um, to evaluate if um, MACE uh, or major cardiovascular events occurred. They used a weighted model with uh, time-varying covariates. Um, and very interesting findings, um, I would say. So they found compared to no steroid use, that if uh, patients used steroids for one to seven days, the risk or the odds of MACE was 1.54. If they used steroids for between eight and 90 days, the odds of MACE was 1.78. And if they used steroids for more than 90 days, the odds of MACE was 2.17. So an increasing trend with increasing steroid use um, for increased risk of MACE. 
So again, I think this really confirms what we've all been saying, that steroids are bad in each and every way possible in rheumatoid arthritis, and we really should be endeavoring to limit their use as much as possible. And if this means going on to another effective agent, including a biologic drug, then that's uh, what we should do. The steroids being used as a, as a holding pattern um, in this disease, and in fact, in probably any rheumatic disease, is um, increasingly looking like um, a bad uh, approach uh, to treatment. Remember uh, to log in to, to Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2022 and follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now from ACR 22. Um, and today I wanted to focus on uh, reproductive health in the world of rheumatology, especially in our current climate in a post Roe v. Wade world. And uh, there's two abstracts I wanted to discuss. The first um, was uh, 1673. And this actually looked at the preconception exposure uh, in relation to the time of conception in our patients. This was a French study uh, that looked at a national cohort of patients with spondylarthritis. And overall, 200 some patients were analyzed. The median time to conception was 16 months. And these patients were treated with uh, an assortment of agents, including NSAIDs, steroids, conventional DMARDs, and biologics. And overall, they found that NSAID use and age were the only association with a longer time to conception. Uh, ironically, biologics and conventional DMARDs, uh, as well as disease duration and smoking were not associated. Um, so I think overall, the study just tells us to be wary of NSAID use, especially in our female patients, young patients who are planning and conceiving. Um, and try to minimize use. And I think it also uh, goes back to our old adage that, adage that we hear every time with reproductive health in, in our world, which is healthy mother and healthy baby. Um, so perhaps if we uh, do our best to control disease, disease state, um, periconception uh, time period, um, we can minimize their NSAID use. And the other study I wanted to focus on is a late-breaking abstract. This is L9. Um, and this study really looked at the impact access uh, of methotrexate in our patients uh, post Roe v. Wade. So um, a few quick history lessons here. We know methotrexate is a first-line therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. We also know that in high doses, um, it can be used to treat uh, uh, miscarriage and ectopic pregnancies. And we also know that recently this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided to overturn Roe v. Wade, and some states then enacted laws banning or restricting abortion. Um, this study assessed the impact of that decision on our patients with rheumatic diseases and their access to care. Um, they looked at the forward registry, um, and specific about uh, 1,700 patients. And out of those patients, almost 400 patients attempted to fill methotrexate after the Supreme Court decision. Um, of those, 23 experienced a barrier to methotrexate access. Uh, most of them was a delay in uh, prescription refill by the pharmacy. Five of them were just told outright that because of the Supreme Court decision uh, and, and methotrexate has issues with pregnancy and concerns about abortion, they were kind of uh, at least delayed. Um, six had similar experiences, but they did not really have a clear explanation and had a uh, muscle, uh, much less sort of uh, acute uh, presentation by the uh, pharmacy. 
Um, so I think uh, obviously this is, this is uh, a really very recent development. We have to keep in mind that we need to advocate for our patients who need therapy. Uh, we need to educate them on what they're taking. And I think something that we can do uh, quickly to help them uh, at least maintain their access to uh, our drugs is perhaps just writing the, uh, you know, the purpose of the prescription um, to help the pharmacy at least understand why they're receiving these drugs. So uh, thanks for tuning in uh, to Room Now for coverage of ACR 22. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, David Liu here from Melbourne, Australia, in Philly at the ACR 2022, all going on. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about some RA abstracts, in particular, some work from Maurizio Cotolo's group um, from Geneva. Concept I really like. It's about trying to objectively assess hand function through an engineered glove. Now, I remember when I was at sitting exams as a medical student and in Australia as a physician trainee in mid-training, um, mid we always had to try and assess people's hand function because that was meant to be relevant to rheumatoid arthritis patients. And we'd have to make people open up a, um, a little bottle um, and watch them do that. Now, I can see the utility in that, but the, probably the reason why we don't necessarily do that in practice is that it's a little bit contrived, it's not necessarily consistent, and we don't have a way of quantifying that. We've got technology now. So imagine if you engineered a glove and you put it on our rheumatoid arthritis patients, got them to do some activities, and then really actually assessed in reality what their function was like without necessarily a questionnaire, without necessarily any other um, ad hoc assessment. And that's what, exactly what they did. They've got this glove and they tried it on 30, about 30 patients. Um, and what they did was they saw that, took a hack as well, and put those together and saw how that correlated with the DAS28. And amazingly, really, you take the engineered um, glove outcomes as well as hack, put them together, they correlate with DAS28. So we can learn a lot about, um, about what function means for, for disease activity from this, this process. Um, but also, if we can try and objectively quantify function like that, then we can really add that together and have another disease activity measure, something that's consistently available, doesn't require any blood tests, and actually means something to our patients. For plenty more about rheumatoid arthritis and everything else at this conference, head on down to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm Julian Segan from Melbourne, Australia, reporting here from Philadelphia at the ACR Convergence 2022 for Room Now. I want to talk to you about abstract number 916, should patients with rheumatoid arthritis with controlled disease taper methotrexate from targeted therapy or continue it? Uh, risk differences in sustained remission uh, from a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this is a systematic uh, review and meta-analysis looking at tapering methotrexate from either biologic therapies or targeted synthetic DMARDs. I think it's probably fair to say that methotrexate is not our patient's favourite medications. Uh, in a lot it can be associated with significant side effects and many of our patients will continue taking it and just putting up with it uh, just because us as doctors tell them to. So the aim of this review was to try and determine what the percentage of patients uh, who have a flare after tapering or stopping abruptly methotrexate whilst taking a targeted synthetic uh, disease modifying agent or a biologic medication. Uh, so 10 studies were included in this systematic uh, review and meta-analysis. There were three which included etanercept, uh, three for tocilizumab and one each for tofacitinib, sertilizumab, adalimumab and abatacept. 
there were over 2,000 patients that were included in the final, final meta-analysis. Um, there were, of course, differences in taper strategies uh, between the studies, which limits uh, the uh, applicability somewhat uh, for the overall meta-analysis. Uh, the main result was that there was a 10% reduced chance of remaining in remission in those who tapered methotrexate compared to those who continued methotrexate over the course of one year. Uh, in the study from Cohen and colleagues, uh, quite interestingly, uh, there was actually no significant difference uh, between tapering methotrexate and not tapering methotrexate in patients uh, who were taking tofacitinib. And so that suggests that perhaps there are differences in the uh, mechanism of action uh, when considering tapering methotrexate from a targeted agent. Uh, it would be really good to have more studies which looked at this question, uh, whether tapering some of our other disease-modifying agents uh, allows us to remain uh, in disease control, uh, really because um, some of these medications have side effects and our patients don't really want to be taking lots of extra medications if they don't have to be. Um, there's also significant debate about whether methotrexate should be the uh, disease-modifying agent tapered before targeted synthetic medications or uh, biologic DMARs. And uh, these are uh, questions to be answered in future studies as well as health economic analyses. Uh, we welcome more data in the area and I look forward to reading the full uh, systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, for more uh, information on rheumatoid arthritis, visit roomnow.com. I'm Dr Julian Sagan from Melbourne, Australia. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now from ACR uh, 2022. And I'm here to talk to you today about um, an oral presentation on Monday. This was by Matthew Baker and colleagues. And this was on the reduction in RA interstitial lung disease risk with tofacitinib. So this was a retrospective study uh, using the Optum database. And um, they had 28,500 patients um, with rheumatoid arthritis who did not have pre-existing interstitial lung disease. Around 1,500 of those were treated uh, with uh, tofacitinib and the others were treated with other biologic um, agents. So, so they did a number of different analyses here. Um, first of all, they calculated crude incident um, rates um, for the development of interstitial lung disease in the patients on these biologic agents. And for those, they found that adalimumab had um, an incident rate of 3.43 per thousand patient years, rituximab of 6.15 per thousand patient years, tocilizumab of 5.05 per thousand patient years, abatacept of 4.46 per thousand patient years, and tofacitinib of 1.47 per thousand patient years. And they adjusted this for multiple other variables, and they found that tofacitinib versus adalimumab had an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.31 for the development um, of interstitial uh, lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are treated with um, biologic um, agents or uh, tofacitinib. They then went on and did a second analysis of, these, of this. They did a prevalent new user cohort design with propensity score matching. Um, and again, comparing uh, tofacitinib and adalimumab as the main um, analyses. And they found that the incident rate per thousand patient years of new ILD was 1.48 for tofacitinib and 4.30 for adalimumab, giving an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.33.
So this is interesting data. Um, it's uh, still very preliminary. It's a retrospective database-based study uh, with all the inherent limitations um, of that. Um, but it is encouraging to see some uh, potential evidence uh, for a drug which could prevent um, the development of interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis. We know that um, 8 to 10% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis develop this complication. And when they do develop it, the, the prognosis is not good at all. The, the median survival is three years after diagnosis um, of RA ILD. So any agent that could potentially uh, prevent this uh, would be very uh, welcome. We will wait and see uh, what further uh, studies um, of JAK inhibitors in this area show. So remember uh, to check out Room Now for all the updates um, from ACR 2022. And you can follow me on Twitter at Richard P. A. Conway.